Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. This is Chris. Thank you for joining us again today as we check out another message by Paul Hugabart. In this episode, Paul asks really important questions like, do we need God? What matters most in this life? He talks about the fact that we're not supposed to rail against culture, but we also aren't called to ignore culture. We need to really understand the story that culture is telling us, because if we don't, we can become just like the culture. Let's go ahead and check out this episode and join in together now. Real quickly, to begin last week's message, I asked this question. What do you think is the most influential narrative at play in the Western world currently? And I gave this clue because I know a lot of people would say, well, it's the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's the Christian ethic that really has the most influence on the culture around us or on the Western world. And while that used to be true, the reality is that it is no longer Christianity that controls the dominant worldview of, of our culture, of Western culture. And so we said last week that really it's, it began with secular humanism, or secular humanism is what, what plays into the current cultural narrative. And we said this about secular humanism, that secular humanism is humanism with regard in particular to the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief in God. And that's really important because we used to believe that we, we needed God in order to find meaning, purpose, value in life. But secular humanism and what came out of that, the postmodern worldview, has at this point in time determined that we don't need God to determine what is true or, or where meaning is in life. In fact, that we have the ability to make our own truth. So that, that's important. That's one of the first pillars of the postmodern worldview is that we have the ability to make our own truth. What's true for you can be true for you without being true for someone else. And what's true for them doesn't necessarily have to be true for you. You've got your own truth. And then beyond that, that we also have the ability to make our own meaning. Again, we don't need God to give us a purpose in life. We don't need a designer or a creator to give us a purpose in life. We of ourselves, because again, as secular humanists, what we believe is that we have the ability to define our own meaning or create even our own meaning in life. And then kind of the last pillar, as I defined it last week, of this postmodern move is that nothing matters more in life than happiness. And really, you can see this true in so many ways about the culture around us, the people that we often walk among in the world. And sometimes we realize this is true about ourselves as well, ourselves as well that we have kind of landed on this place sometimes where we act as though nothing matters more in life than happiness. Sometimes even we say it this way as Christians, well, well, God just wants me to be happy, right? So you get where I'm going with this. But, but I want to remind you again of this, that, that we're not called to rail against culture. In fact, I think as Christians, it's much better when we don't rail against culture. But at the same time, we don't need to ignore culture either. I talked about last week, there's this kind of sweet spot that falls, it falls somewhere in between, and it's instead of railing against culture, and instead of ignoring culture, we should seek to understand the story that the culture around us is telling. Why? Well, here's where we landed last week. Unless you and I become informed about the stories we believe, we're just as likely as the culture around us to have no idea what life is all about. And that's important because life is about finding meaning. It is about finding purpose. It is about discovering truth. And we can believe that we can either create our own truth and meaning, or we can believe that God designed us for a purpose 
and that God is the one that has imparted truth to us and gives meaning to our lives. Well, as we take this one step further, I'm going to add one more post into the conversation, and we touched on this just briefly last week. We talked about postmodernism last week. We're going to talk about what it means a bit in a minute here just to be post-Christian, which we, again, we touched on this last week. Post-Christian is a term that you maybe have heard, and I want to give you kind of my spin on what it means to be post-Christian. Post-Christian means that we're no longer embracing a Christian worldview. That point may not come as a surprise to you in any way. Or that we're accepting the wisdom of Christian values as a rule. Again, that probably would not come as a surprise when we say post-Christian, after-Christian, or after-Christianity, after-Christian culture. So no longer embracing a Christian worldview or accepting the wisdom of Christian values as a rule, but I think there's another point to this that I think is important for us to absorb and hold on to. You see, because while culture around us for the most part, is no longer embracing a Christian worldview or accepting the wisdom of Christian values as a rule, culture likes to continue to enjoy many of the benefits of a society established upon these principles. And you say, you may say, what do you, what do you mean by that, Paul? And so let me give you just one example. We could, we could talk about this for, for quite some time, but I want to give just one example of where this is true. And I'm going to put on screen, on the screen here behind me, two words, human rights. Now, I want you to know this. If you're a student of history, you probably do know this. But if you're not a student of history, you may not be aware of this. But it wasn't until, the, until Christian values rose to the top of, of the way that cultures, cultures valued different things and especially people that human rights even became, became a thing. One way that we can define this is by putting another word on the screen, oppression. For years of human history, it was assumed that oppression was an okay thing. In fact, it was right when one people who were stronger than another dominated those other people. In fact, we, we have the saying, might makes right. Well, that idea goes back centuries and maybe even millennia. In fact, if you look at the way that the world operated 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, if you go back 4,000 years, we see over time what happened is people were warlike and a stronger people would come and they would overthrow a weaker people and those weaker people would become part of the stronger people or be wiped out by the stronger people. But nowadays, you and I look at that and we say, that's not okay. Western culture looks at oppression and says, that's not okay. When we hear about the violation of human rights in China, we look at that in Western culture and we say, that's not okay. But I want to ask you this. If that's not the way we've operated for millennia of human civilization, why do we think that now? And let me tell you, unashamedly, it's because we have adopted this ethic that comes from the teachings of Jesus and the, the values of the Jewish people imparted to them by God over the centuries that says oppression is not okay and every human being has value, meaning, and purpose because God has given them that value, meaning, and purpose. And so in that, just that short example, you can see what I mean when I say that, listen, in the post-Christian culture, oftentimes we want to hang on to some of the things that we have learned and we say, yes, this matters without actually holding on to the Christian values themselves. Well, this morning, we're going to use some of that thinking about what it means to be post-Christian. We're actually going to jump into a story out of Scripture. You already heard Bruce reference John chapter 4. We're going to jump in this story together, this time where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at this well, a very important well historically to Jewish people, the well of Jacob. And you're going to see how this story plays out. And you're going to see there are a lot of parallels 
between what the Samaritan woman experienced in her day and age and what oftentimes I think, I think post-Christian people experience in our day and age as well. So if you got your Bibles, I'll invite you to open up to John chapter 4. If not, I'll have all the scripture on this screen here that I will be engaging with and you can read along with me. Here's what we read, beginning in John chapter 4, verse 7. This is what John tells us. He says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? John gives us some editorial notes here to say that his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And so the Samaritan woman said to him, back to Jesus now, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? Again, John gives us some more editorial note in there. So Jesus was breaking, I think, what were two traditions of the culture or two proprieties of the culture in some way. He was engaging with someone who was a Samaritan, and he was a Jew, and she was also a woman, and he's a single man, and he really shouldn't have been engaging with her, at least by, again, by the values of that culture, by what was accepted in that culture. But Jesus did, and so John wants us to know, he wants us to understand why this is important to the story. So John continues, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, we're going to put this story on pause just for a second, because you may be asking a question at home, or maybe one of your kids has just said to you, who are the Samaritans? I don't know who the Samaritans are. Who are the Samaritans? And that's a good question. So we're going to ask that, and we're going to try to answer that as well. Who are the Samaritans? Who was this woman who Jesus was engaging with at this well? Well, the Samaritans were a group of people who claimed a Jewish lineage, but had intermarried with pagans. Now, this goes back several centuries to the time of the northern kingdom. There was a split that there was, you know, at one point in time, Israel was one kingdom. Then there was the southern kingdom, then the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was unfaithful before the southern kingdom was unfaithful. So at the time that the northern kingdom was unfaithful, God sends the Assyrian army to invade the northern kingdom. And in doing so, takes many of them captive, but also leaves some of the the Jewish people in that area of the northern kingdom, but then also transplants some Assyrians into the northern kingdom. And over time, these Jewish people intermarried with pagan Assyria. And in the process of several centuries gone by, these people, now the Samaritans, kept some Jewish traditions. In fact, they had a memory and a history of quite a few Jewish traditions. They had values that had come from the Judeo system, the Judeo system, not yet Judeo-Christian system, but from the Jewish system. They had values that came from that system, traditions that came from that system. They remembered about the one God and worshiped him. Now we'll see in just a minute, they didn't worship him where the Jews worship him. They worshiped him somewhere else. But they kept a lot of the Jewish traditions, but they also mixed in plenty of pagan tradition as well. And so they were almost this hybrid people in a sense. Yes, definitely ethnically, they were intermarried, but also when it came to the systems that influenced who they were as a people, the narratives that influenced who they were as a people, they had some Jewish traditions, but they also had plenty of pagan traditions. Okay, so back to the story. 
We're going to pick up in verse 11. Sir, the woman said, and remember Jesus had just said, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for living water. So she says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Now, check this question out. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, they they had been talking about water, water that quenches thirst. Jesus brings in this concept of living water. And now this Samaritan woman is kind of engaging, walking the line between this spiritual water that Jesus is talking about and this physical water that is also present at the bottom of this well. And so she asks him a question, where are you going to get the water? But then she brings in kind of now this next kind of concept, which deals with a much more, I think, in a much more spiritual realm. And she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Well, Jesus answered her. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, you've got to notice this conversation has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? It started with, give me a drink, I'm thirsty, to I've got something that connects to eternal life. And what we see in this short snippet of Scripture is that Jesus says very plainly, the water that comes out of Jacob's well doesn't hold a candle to the water that I'm about to offer you or what I am offering you. We switch topics here. We're not talking about Aquafina or Dasani anymore. We're talking about something that only Jesus can give. And in a sense, Jesus says to this woman, you can keep coming back to dip water from a well that will never fully satisfy or you can have living water. Now, now this is an important story, and we're going to jump back into this in just a second, but I don't want you to miss what has just happened in the way that Jesus has been engaging with this woman at the well. Now, some very important things are, just, are going to happen in just a minute, but I want you to see how the con- conversation has shifted from something physical to something that is truly metaphysical, something that is, transcends just the physical space and is now spiritual in nature. You can have water from this well, Jesus has said, or I can give you water that will lead to eternal life. So we'll pick back up with the story in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now she's gone back to the physical here for a second. He told her, call your husband and, and, and call back and come back. And, and then we can talk about this water some more. And, and she says, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Now, we don't know exactly why this woman had had five husbands. Had she been married, divorced four times, five times? Had some of these husbands passed away, left her? We don't know, but what we can see is she's had a broken past, no matter what the case. Whether it's divorce, whether it's I've lost these husbands, they've left me, whether it's I've had four husbands who have died, five husbands who have died. Whatever the case, she's had a broken past, a difficult past. And so Jesus says to her, what, have you, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see 
that you are a prophet. What you've said about my life is true. I can see that you're a prophet. Now, watch what she does in this conversation. And listen to where she jumps now. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Right here. This is where we've worshipped. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. There's been some disconnect, several centuries of disconnect. And so you've lost touch to some degree, Jesus says. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, I want you to see, especially as it relates to our series this month, what Jesus has just done as he's engaged with this Samaritan woman. In a sense, what he's done is he said to her, I'm calling you to believe a better story, one that centers on me. You've been disconnected from the real story, the better story of life for some time your people have. But I'm now calling you to believe a better story, one that centers on me. On me. And if you're not making the jump to this with me yet, let me show you why I believe this is true. This is how this story wraps up, jumping all the way to verse 39 through 41. Many of the Samaritans, John tells us, from that town believed in him, that's Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. Now listen to what her testimony is. He told me everything I ever did. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now I want to come back to this line. He told me everything I ever did. I want you to think about the exchange that we have recorded. And we've got to be honest, maybe, maybe John didn't give us every word that was exchanged between the Samaritan woman and Jesus that day. But John gives us the gist of the story at any rate. I want you to think again about this line. He told me everything I ever did. What what did Jesus tell this lady? He told her about this water that would lead to eternal life. He told her she'd had five husbands and the man she was living with now was not one that she was married to. He, He told her at least what to her equated to the story of her life. He told me the story of my life. And I think even more than what Jesus told her, the facts that we see or the details that he represented to her where she said, how do you know this? You've obviously got to be a prophet. I think even more than this was that Jesus exposed a deeper story of her life. And here's how I want to package this for you. And we're going to come back to the statement that we've already seen together. I think the story Jesus told her was this one. You can keep coming back to dip water from a well that will never fully satisfy, or you 
can have living water. I mean, that was the story of her life. She had been going to a well that would never satisfy. She'd had five husbands. I don't know what the rest of her life looked like, but as Jesus reveals to her this little snapshot of her life, and as Jesus has this conversation with her about this physical water, but then this spiritual water, this new story, this better story, this new and much better way of living, what she walks away with is this moment of realization. He told me everything I ever did. He talked to me about my own story, the story that I had been believing that had shaped my life, the narrative that I had been believing about who I was, the narrative of the culture around me as well. Well, that brings us back to this point. I said earlier in this message and last week as well that we need to understand the story that the culture around us is telling. So we'll come back to our post of the week, post-Christian. And again, let me just read this definition for you so this is clear in your mind again. Post-Christian, no longer embracing a Christian worldview or accepting the wisdom of Christian values as a rule while continuing to enjoy many of the benefits of a society established upon these principles. Again, in many ways, there's there's a real parallel between the Samaritan world of the first century and and the post-Christian world of our century today. There was a real memory of God at work among the Samaritans, even a a memory of the Messiah, of, of a better thing coming. But they'd been distanced from it for quite some time. It wasn't really part of the story. It was part of the background of the story. And I think that's true for our post-Christian culture as well, that there's a background to the story that we tell. Now, what does it work here is the belief that people were once Christian. People were once Christian. A culture was once Christian. That's why we're post-Christian. That's why America is now, America is now referred to as a post-Christian nation, no longer a Christian nation. So I want to introduce another word to you, and you may or may not be familiar with this one. This word is deconstruction. And as we try to understand how we became post-Christian, we need to understand this word deconstruction. I'm going to give you quickly uh, my definition of what, it, of what deconstruction is. You can find many other uh, definitions out there about what deconstruction is. But, but here's what I've got. The act of piece by piece taking apart a belief system or worldview that was once adhered to and often replacing it with another. So that is how we've become post-Christian in our nation, in the Western world at this point in time, is by piece by piece taking apart a belief system, and that's happening at a, at a grand, at a meta level. It's happening at a macro level, but it's also happening at a micro level as individually people take apart pieces of the belief system, the Christian worldview that was once adhered to, and as they begin to replace it with another. So I want to ask you this question just to let you think about this for for just a second. Why, Why do people deconstruct their faith? Why does this happen? Why do we see so many stories in our culture today of people who have deconstructed their faith? I'll give you just one example. When I was in college, I read a book by a guy named Joshua Harris. It was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. 
It's a very influential book with, uh, you know, I think people my age, my generation, especially who were Christian. Um, Joshua Harris, just in the last few years, has determined that he no longer believes. And he's given a whole bunch of reasons for why he's deconstructed his faith. He was a prominent minister. He wrote a book about why we need the church. We've read that book in our radical mentoring groups. But in the last few years, he's deconstructed his faith and walked away from the church. I'm going to make a quick plug for a podcast that we began here in in the last several weeks, because I know these are complicated topics. And to understand these more fully, you can tune in every Tuesday morning with Ben and myself as we will try to pull these apart for the next few months. But until we do that, let me give you just a little bit of understanding of, of why people deconstruct their faith. And I'm going to borrow again from John Mark Comer. I did this last week. I borrowed from his book, Live No Lies. This is from a message that he shared uh, within the last 18 months or so. So John Mark Comer says that deconstruction takes place on two levels. First is the external level, external deconstruction. And in that, he's got this category at the top here, broken trust from spiritual leaders. Now, now we've seen this at play in in many different ways over the last several years. So many scandals in churches that lead people to doubt first their leaders and then eventually the church. So we have to be honest with this, that sometimes people move to deconstructing their faith because something is wrong within the church or a church. He also talks about this, ascendant secular ideologies. And what he means by that is, ascendant is just basically rising to prominence, is that secular ideologies are rising to prominence within our culture around us, being talked about and valued more highly than they once were. Where Christian ideologies were once highly valued, now secular ideologies are once highly are now highly valued, and are what people hear about, both within sometimes the school systems and through media, and just about everywhere you look. Secular ideology is becoming more and more prominent. The last thing that he says that happens on an external level is that we have this problem of cheap grace and low discipleship. And what he means within many church cultures, we've offered a cheap grace to our people, and we have not done a good job of discipling those who are members of churches. In other words, there are a lot of church members within a lot of churches, but not necessarily disciples of Jesus within those same churches. Now, it doesn't just, just, deconstruction doesn't just happen on the external level. It also happens on an internal level, and you'll see there's a lot of connection between the external and the internal. So we're going to connect this one with the first one I talked about at the external level, the wounded heart. The wounded heart can come about for a number of reasons, and one of those reasons is because of a lack of trust with church leaders at times. And that says something about the way we've sometimes led within churches, that we've actually wounded people as opposed to building them up and helping them restore their hearts. We've wounded their hearts. But it's not just about what church leaders do. It can be about an experience someone had with the church or maybe an experience they had outside of the church that has shaped their view of God. Or maybe they believed one thing. They had potentially a a shallow belief about what God ought to be doing for them. They had a Santa Claus view of God. God didn't meet their expectations, and so God wounded their heart, in a sense, is what they believe. So they had a broken heart. They blamed it on God. That happened internally. 
Now, the second one we've got to be real honest about, about the reality of the digital input within our society and within our culture. I said, I talked about media. I talked about school systems. But the reality is, especially with the younger generation, now this this is going to blow your mind. Our younger generations, millennials and younger, consume 20 or more hours of digital media per week. And that could be YouTube or podcasts or other things. So half of the work week is consumed with digital inputs, digital media. And on average, only one of those has a Christian or spiritual emphasis. So when you've got this 19 to 1 ratio, you can imagine what you're putting in is what you're filling yourself with is what you're becoming as well. And so the digital inputs have played into this at the level of internal deconstruction quite a bit as well. But in addition to that, there's this idea that low scripture, there's a low consumption of scripture. So high consumption of this digital media, digital inputs, and a low consumption of scripture. And then the last one that he says is there's a reality that within most people within our culture, there's just this lack of a fear of God. Now this connects right with the fact that we believe that we can create our own truth, define our own meaning. We don't need God to do that for us. We don't want God to do that for us. And so we've forgotten about who God is and the role he plays in our lives. In the last several weeks, um, I wrote an article myself. Uh, was posted for uh, was posted on Renew.org, and you can check this out there if you want to. Um, I went through here, and I'm going to give you these real quick. The, the article is entitled Six Reasons We're Drawn to Christianity's Deconstruction Stories," and we'll spend some more on the more time on the podcast talking about this one on Tuesday morning. But I want you to see in this, we're all drawn. And my my point in this article is that we are drawn to these deconstruction stories because. On some level, we all feel what the people who are deconstructing are going through to some degree or another. We can identify with it. So I give six reasons in this article that we're drawn to these deconstruction stories. The first is this. We all have questions. Every one of us, we have questions. There are times when, when I doubt if I can be that honest with you right now. I've walked through periods and seasons of intense doubt. I detail one of those in the article. We all have questions. There are times where you will struggle in your faith, and that's okay. We see many instances in Scripture. We see it in King David himself, where he struggled and and said, where are you, God? We all have questions. The second thing I point out in the article is this, that many of us don't have a safe place to ask questions. And this is where the problems can begin, is that the church ought to be a safe place to ask the difficult questions that we have. But sometimes the church has not been a safe place to ask those questions. The third is this, and this kind of goes along with the spirit of the age right now. The reality is when you look at the world around us, the culture around us, there is this raging mistrust of anything institutional. We don't know if we can believe election results. We don't know if we can believe what we're told on the news. And sometimes we don't know if we can believe what the preacher said on Sunday morning. You know, right now we're living in a time where the trust level that people have for churches is the lowest it's ever been in polled history. People even don't trust the churches, but people don't trust doctors and people don't trust scientists. There's a raging mistrust of just about anything institutional, which kind of explains the next one as well. We're living in an age where we are drawn to the me against the world narratives that many who are deconstructing tell. The me against the world narrative has become our hero narrative 
in this day and age. We're turning people into heroes who are just standing and saying, I'm not doing what you're going to do. And I'm not doing that good thing whether you tell me it's good or not. I'm just not going to do it. It's me against the world. The fifth thing is this. We have to acknowledge that there are very real pressures from the culture around us, and, and we all feel these to some level. There are times when I have been tempted to compromise in the way I communicate what I see in Scripture because I'm concerned about what somebody out there may think about me. Or I'm concerned about, I'm concerned about the pushback I may receive. I can think about a friend down the road, a friend just down the road who preaches at another larger church who received a couple of death threats after preaching a message that some did not appreciate one Sunday morning. And oftentimes the pressure from the culture around us doesn't come in the form of death threats, but it does come in the form of disagreement. Or maybe you'll be silenced and canceled if you say what you believe. There are very real pressures from the culture around us. And while all of these, these first five are important, I think number six is most important, and this is where we're going to land this morning. We have forgotten just how beautiful the Christian worldview and faith are. Church, many times the story we tell is one we become somewhat ashamed of on some level. And we've been pressured, certainly, number five, by culture to believe that the story has aspects and elements of shame in it that we should just not be proud of. But but the reality is a God who has stepped down in history who came to give his life for us because he loved us that much. There is no more beautiful story. And we could dig into this one much more deeply, and we certainly will. As time goes on on the podcast, certainly we will. But just at a very surface level, we've forgotten just how beautiful the Christian worldview and faith are. I want to take you back to Jesus' words from John 4, 13 through 14. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, everyone who drinks this water. Now, now remember, Jesus is starting to transition from talking about physical water to talking about the story we have believed, to talking about our worldview, to talking about what we build our life upon, what we place our faith in. Jesus is transitioning right here. So he says, everyone who drinks this water, and yes, I know this well has plenty of history. It's Jacob's well. You place a lot of faith in this well. You've got Jacob's well. There's meaning here. But Jesus says, even even somebody who drinks from Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Church, the story we are called to believe, the better story we are called to believe centers on Jesus. At its center, at the center of the better story we're talking about all this month is Jesus, the person of Jesus. And I want to take you back to this statement that we've already, we've already seen two times, but, but, but really this is what matters in this morning's message. You can keep coming back to dip water from a well that will never fully satisfy And let me tell you this, that the narrative of the world, of culture around us, will never fully satisfy. You cannot create your own truth. You cannot create your own meaning. And there better be things in life that matter more than your personal happiness. Because what you're going to find, if that is what you're building your life on, 
you're going to keep coming back to dip water from that well. And that water is never going to fully satisfy. Or, as Jesus says, you can have living water. That is the better story that Jesus is bringing to us every day. If you're unfamiliar with who Renew.org is, I want to just take one second and tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're all about. We care a ton about the theology behind Jesus-style disciple-making and really creating that firm foundation for churches and organizations to build upon. We invite you to check us out at Renew.org where we have free resources, ebooks, podcasts, and also we have a national conference that we have every year. And we're gathering in Indianapolis this year on April 25th and 26th. We just invite you to grab some tickets, check us out online, and see what we're all about.